So, Fran, thanks for coming back on the show. And let's talk about narcissism. But before we do that, let's introduce ourselves. Okay. Uh, my name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Fran? Hi, I'm Francis Shopik. I am an MSW as well as an attorney. I work these days as an attorney. I represent, I represent counselors or uh, Department of Health licensees who have problems with DOH complaints, as well as I give talks on record keeping and uh, various risk management issues, disclosure forms, documentation, um, speaking in court, various things like that. Yeah. I would call you, Fran, a super expert on ethics and on legal matters when it comes to us in the mental health field. There are people who are experts who might teach continuing education classes, and then there are super experts who uh, perhaps know know more than anyone else based on their experience Mm -hmm. and their dedication to the topic, and you're one of those people. So thanks for joining us. But today, we're going to be talking about narcissism. And you and I have not talked about Anything prior to this moment, so I have no idea what's going to come out of your face. Uh, what kind of things do you want to talk about? I've been giving talks in the community that uh, have three part, parts to them. One is called, Are You a Narcissist Magnet? One is called, How to Repel a Narcissist? And the third is, How to Recover from Relationships with a Narcissist and Deciding What's Right for You. Now, these talks are based from the point of view of a person who finds him or herself constantly getting into a repeated a repeated pattern of having basically the same relationship over and over with someone who fails to put their needs either first or even equal to their own. So that's one way of looking at the problem. Now, another way of looking at the problem, and given my, my role as an attorney who represents counselors, is that counselors often don't understand the dynamic of a person who's uh, involved repeatedly with a narcissist or a person with narcissistic qualities. And so the Counselors sometimes end up unwittingly colluding with the person who has the narcissistic, narcissistic behaviors and can actually harm their own clients who are the people who get who usually become involved with people. I say that, that the clients are usually the ones who become involved with people with narcissistic behaviors because people who are narcissists don't generally go to therapy. Mm. They're the ones who come to therapy because their partner demands it. And so they might come. They're, they're very good at, at mastering the process and even fooling the therapist so that the therapist ends up unwittingly or not colluding with that person. Um, I want to say I come to this experience, to this, to this topic with a lot of experience. As a social worker, I worked on a research project in New York City on mood and personality disorders. So I re- routinely interviewed people with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and also schizotypal personality disorder. But it's really those three that we're focusing on more in general here. Um, And then I worked in the Bronx, New York, with people who were court-mandated to services because they were the perpetrators of domestic violence, both male and female, although the percentages are, there are many more male uh, perpetrators in the court system than female. And I worked with the targets or victims of domestic violence. Um, And there's also something called coercive control, which is a more subtle form of domestic violence, but nonetheless very difficult. Now, I come to this believing that I'm not so concerned about whether a person fulfills full criteria as per the DSM-5 for narcissistic personality disorder or antisocial or borderline. 
I think it's more important to look at the behaviors that can be so disruptive and, and problematic for relationships. But having said that, I want to say that I'm not casting one type of person as good and the other as bad. I think particularly in terms of certain areas of society, being a narcissistic person can be quite useful. I mean, if you're a person, for instance, who believes that that you have a concept, um, you know, a, a, an invention that everybody else is telling you is just simply impossible, but you believe in it, it might take a little bit of it might take a little bit of arrogance or entitlement or something to really stick stick to it and to the point of fruition. I think also antisocial personality disorder, there can be some advantages to that. If we need someone to go into battle for us as a country, um, if if somebody who's who's highly relational and has all sorts of empathy and compassion for the person before them, that might not be the most useful characteristic if you're in the middle of a, of a battle. Right. And if you want to advocate for certain, uh, uh, you know, topics related to psychology and you want to start a podcast, having a little bit of arrogance and entitlement to your opinions <laughs> and loving to hear yourself talk, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, certainly lends itself to becoming a podcaster and a little bit of antisocial with the uh, comfort with breaking rules and not really caring about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pushing the boundaries and saying things that are going to bother some people also lends itself to podcasting. Right. And that's why it's important, I think, to to identify what it is you're looking to talk about. Because if you're looking to talk about relationships and how some of these behaviors can be destructive to, toward relationships, then I think it can be useful. I think it's important to look at both sides. I think the way I like to talk about it is I find myself talking about relational versus transactional people and hyper-relational and hyper-transactional people. I think the ideal, actually, is for all of us to be kind of what I call relationally transactional. That if someone doesn't meet exactly all of your needs, even as a relational person, to throw them away, I don't know that that, I don't think that's useful. I think what can be useful is to say, this person has been a good friend in certain ways. They're not my perfect friend. They don't do everything as I hope it would work out, but I'm not going to throw this person away. Mm -hmm. So I think... You know, we can look at the extremes of the hyper-relational person and the hyper-transactional and everywhere in between. Also, when we talk about narcissism, and I'm, I know you know this, but we're talking about a continuum so that um, we all are considered to have he what's called healthy narcissism, which means that we all hopefully um, want to do the best we can. We want to be as attractive as we can or as accomplished as we can be. That doesn't make a person narcissistic in the full-blown sense of the word. Um, that's why I'm not as concerned with whether a person fulfills full criteria for narcissistic personality disorder as really what are the characteristics that they display and whether they're, whether it creates problems within a relationship. If it creates problems within a relationship, then it's up to each person to ask themselves if this, if they want to change it and if it's worthwhile and helpful. Um, they have the choice of staying in a relationship, making it work or walking away. Um, and just to make those choices in a conscious way is, I think, what's important. So you said that you see counselors, correct me if I'm wrong, becoming manipulated by their narcissistic th clients, and they will go to court, and as an expert witness in the courtroom watching this, uh, you're like, oh boy, I think that therapist is being manipulated by a narcissistic uh, client. Is that what you're saying? No. Well, first of all, it's not usually the narcissist who comes for therapy. Right. It can occur. But what's more likely is that there, there's 
let's say, a relationship and a person who's involved with, a person who's hyper-relational, that is to say, who stays within a relationship with somebody who's narcissistic, and that person feels that they're not getting their needs met, but they so much want to be in a relationship or so much might need to be in a relationship, such as if they share children or something, um, they they so much want want to or feel they need to stay in that relationship that they are bypassing their needs. So that person is usually the one who's in therapy. They might bring in a person with more narcissistic behaviors. They might bring that person into therapy because they're kind of saying, we need to work this out. But then what can happen is that the the narcissistic person comes to therapy with the relational person's therapist. And generally speaking, generally speaking, the ways that these things can, can play out is that the therapist might help her, his or her client, for instance, identify their needs. So they, they, they might say to the client, well, did you tell him or her how you feel? Did you tell them, well, when you do this, I feel that, and so please don't do that. That might be one way that they'll handle it. But if you're dealing with somebody who's a narcissist, which is to say someone who is transactionally oriented, who does not care about your needs, then what that method will possibly do, the danger, is that that method actually lays out a landscape for how to abuse the person. Mm. That if the person says, you know, every time you talk to me in that tone, I feel really insecure, and it reminds me of when the way my father spoke to me. Mm. Now you've given, if, if it's a person who's really interested in a relationship, that's great. Now you know that you've told them how they speak and that tone and what it does to you in your heart. And if that person cares about you, they'll try to change their tone. Every time they hear themselves with that tone, they'll try to change it. They'll think, oh my gosh, that person, my, my partner is really upset by this. I don't mean to do that. I'm reminding him or her of how they were treated as children. But if it's a person who is transactional and who's actually enjoying finding power over you, then you've just given him or her a map into how to abuse that person. You've just given them insight into how to say, oh, well, if I talk to them this way, I'm going to make them feel insecure because that's how their father spoke to them. And now I know exactly what to do when I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the tell me what you think about this, because this is my conceptualization. And I also have specialized in treating um, these sorts of personality disorders, not so much antisocial, but a little bit, but borderline histrionic, uh, you know, narcissistic. And also see it very much on a spectrum. I put myself on the spectrum. I'm like 5%. My co-host Umberto has been labeled by the listeners, uh, mainly <laughs> Emily Capelli, uh, another social worker, by the way, who uh, gives him, I think she's a social worker, gives him, uh, I think, 15% or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of an arbitrary number, but meaning that it's not normal narcissism. It's it, it has pros and cons. You know, There's the pros that we laid out earlier, but there's the cons of you know, uh, a little bit of impaired em- empathy at times, a, a bit of a need to have a veil of superiority to m- uh, protect oneself. And so um, I feel personally in touch with the causes and the syndrome um, to a certain extent. I could imagine if it was 10 times worse, just how much um, destruction I would, you know, lay waste to the to the world including people around me and also have treated people like this before and so the the way that I see it that leads to this behavior that that you're leading uh, that you're you know describing is that um, due to relational uh, situations when they're growing up 
namely abuse and or uh, being left to their own devices is a, is another common cause sometimes um, emotional neglect um, this sort of thing they meet a you know a point where they have to decide how they're going to cope with that early in life say at the age of two or three or something and one of the uh, coping styles available to humans because it's so common is to say you know what I'm being treated badly or I'm not getting my needs met and. I'm going to decide that other people are dumb and it's their fault that I'm not getting my needs met. I am superior. I don't need anyone else. I'm good on my own and screw everyone else. And in order to get my needs met, I can't depend on other people, i.e. I have to take what I need from other people. Mm-hmm. I need closeness. I need love. I need security. I need safety. I need self-esteem. And the only way to get that, given my scenario early in life, is to manipulate and take and force and coerce uh, other people to get my needs met. Um, and I'm going to not really pay attention to their feelings because it actually doesn't help me. Um, and no one's caring about my feelings. So, you know, this is just how the world works. And this is, of course, all a subconscious, developmental, even neur- neuronal, you could say, growing up. Um, and so uh, – Fast forward 40 years and you have someone who uh, has a uh, you know, heavily impaired ability to even know what's in someone else's mind, let alone care. They will talk about themselves like they're awesome and everything. They, they can't apologize. They can't admit. They can't even – you hook them up to a lie detector. They don't even think they're wrong. You know, they're, they're, it's not like they're just mm. faking. Um, they actually are – slightly incapable of believing that they've done something wrong because when they are pushed to that point that they have done something wrong, it you know bursts past the veil and suddenly they're faced with actually how they really feel about themselves, which is like not only are they terrible people, but they're almost like non-existent. They just – they don't even really exist in the world. And, and when I've treated people like this, um, I've – got you know been there with them through those abysses and it's not a it's not a pleasant place it's a very very place of extreme despair and so that veil of narcissism is necessary for survival for them of course it you know damages everyone around them but that's my conceptualization i don't uh, you know sometimes when i hear people talking about narcissism i think what they're talking about in my linguistic system is more psychopathy and um, which is a actual inability to care about what other people are thinking and feeling. Um, so is your conceptualization of the word narcissistic personality similar to mine? Is it different? Does it overlap? Well, you're, from what I can tell, and to listeners, this is the first time we're speaking about this together. So, so uh, from what I can tell, you're taking into account a lot of the theories of Ideology of you know how it comes about. I'm actually thinking of it more in terms of diagnosis and how it affects um, the relationships with people. So I think you're. I'm fascinated by the fact that you work with people with um, with these behaviors and that you've had as much. It sounds like you've had a lot of success. And I used to work with DV perpetrators and and saw a lot of it there too. Yeah, and it sounds like you've had a lot of success in breaking through that wall which is wonderful. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'd love to hear more about that at s- some time. Um, I'm seeing it more from the... The victims. Well, from 
from the dyna- I I think of it fr- as from the dynamic point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really like the word victim. I think there is a certain uh, way in which people are targets of these behaviors. Mm-hmm. There are good targets uh, for it. But I, I'm looking more at the behaviors themselves. So, for instance, let's say somebody had um, diabetes, which puts them at risk for heart disease. And let's say they had a genetic predisposition toward that, like their parent, both parents and all the grandparents had problems like that. I'm not looking so much at the etiology, although that can be interesting. I would be looking at more if a person has this genetic predisposition or vulnerability, what can they do about it or how do they handle it and how does it affect their relationships? Because in terms of society or community, um, having some people be so so dominant in terms of a narcissistic spectrum and then other people being non-dominant creates patterns in terms of leadership, in terms of community, and all of that. So that's, and, and in terms of um, people's access even to the court system, I mean, all of these things can be subverted within these dynamics. I think it's important to look at everybody's predispositions. I think, you know, I ask the question, why do people get involved in these relationships? Why does the, the, the more relational person become involved in these relationships over and over again? And I think that it's important to understand that. I don't think it's good enough to just say, well, that's what happens to me and and this other person is terrible. I think it's really important to take responsibility from both sides. So what do you tell people? You have a person that you're consulting, consulting with you or in your class and they're saying, oh, my God, you're describing me, which I'm guessing you've had before. (laughs) And they're just like, oh, my God, I've had, you know, five relationships I can think of and – they were all exactly the sort of person you're talking about, and you're describing my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, why am I like this? What do you say? Well, usually, before getting to why am I like this, I'll go through the behaviors themselves and how just so that they are at that point. I mean, I hear them groaning in the back of the room, and they'll say, oh, my God, this is like you've been in my living room for 15 years. And, and it's really pretty um, – it's pretty sobering. It's a very sobering experience because people are realizing that they are not alone, which is kind of good. But then again, they're not alone. That means that it's happening all over the place. So that either way, it's difficult. It's a difficult pill to swallow. In terms of why people are like this, I think it's it's I guess it's possible, but I would think it highly rare for somebody to actually have the first relationship ever come about now. Like, this has never happened to me before. I'm 45 years old. It's never happened to me before. Where did this come from? For the most part, people are groomed for it, meaning that they come from a situation early in life when they've learned to put other people's needs first, or they've learned to lose connection with their own gut responses. They've learned that they do not get to be the subject of their sentence. So... um so, and that can happen in various ways. It can happen sometimes a person is raised by a narcissistic parent, let's say, or by a parent who um, teaches them to do things, you know, to cheat or to steal. So to put other, to, to, to just think about what you, the parent will be talking about what you need and will teach the child to do that. Um, it, but it can also, it can happen if you grow up in a family where there's um, some form of substance abuse where the the moodiness of the parents can be really flagrant and you just learn that the best thing you can do is go hide mm-hmm. or put other people's needs first. Right. Out. Really pay attention yeah. to that person, f- hyper-focus so that mm-hmm. you can manage them and also react to how what stage of drunk they're in. Exactly. That kind of thing. Yep. I've known people, sibships, you know, groups of ch- children with their siblings, four or five siblings, 
one of them, each day they would rotate the person who would be sent into the house first to sort of assess what mom's state of mind is or what dad's state of mind is, and then go back to the rest of them and just with eye signals to, to signal whether she's drunk or whether she's not or he's, a, you know, in a, in a fit of rage or not. And then they would, the sibs would all, this is coming home from school, they would all figure out how to behave. Mm. Uh, yeah, I had that. a similar situation. Someone was telling me the story about how she could tell by the way her father walked uh, toward the front door yeah. how the night was going to go yeah. for her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's a very common description from people who've grown up with these behaviors because they become hypersensitive to it for, for adaptive reasons, I mean, yeah. to survive. And then they deny the self yeah. and they learn to have safety and maybe a little bit of love. They have to deny the self and they have to manage other people and pay very close attention to their needs right? because that's when, that's when good things happen right. for you. I mean, yeah. And uh, there are other ways people can become groomed too. You can become groomed. I've seen it where... Um, there might be a family member who has some form of disability so that the the lion's share of time, attention, care, concern, money, all of those things understandably go to that person's survival or that person's treatment. It can also happen, I've also seen it happen, where there's someone with a particular talent. So, for instance, a child prodigy, where all the money, time, attention goes into helping that child um, get the instrument that they need or get get be in a position where they can be taught by the by the people that they need, the teachers or the mentors. And, and the then, siblings of that person are the people who grow up to be patterned with narcissists. Well, they learn to put other people's needs first. They learn that within this family, it's the prodigy who needs the attention or it's the person who's ill who needs the attention. I mean, and not needs, them. And not them. And so, and they can handle that different ways. I mean, some children would say, no, I'm not going to put up with this. I want to be front stage too. But there are sometimes, you know, there's that Alice Miller book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Do you know that book? Yeah. So basically where the gifted child is the one, I would say the burdened child, but that's the child who learns to, to read the other parent or read the, other, the situation. And then a, a last example, I think, can be with families where people come from other countries and often parents and grandparents who are developmentally the ones who are taking care of the children but they don't speak the language. And so you'll often see children who are six or seven or eight, they're the ones who speak English and who are doing the negotiations with the landlord or with the, mm. you know, with paying for food or growing up going, too fast, going to the schools. Yeah. And growing, uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it, growing up too fast. But again, there can be in, there can be a trade off. There might be almost some pleasure taken in having a position of responsibility, mm. but at the same time, they never get to be a kid. Right. It is a source of, Great self-esteem that mm -hmm. was supported by rewards socially around them, maybe even practically, like more freedoms or control of the money in the family or something. Mm -hmm. And they uh, are – so, you know, that's one thing to point out that I will talk to with clients of mine who are trying to separate themselves or are trying to navigate a relationship with someone with narcissistic personality is that – uh, by the time they come to me, they'll be able to say, I don't like this person. I don't like their behavior. And as we start to explore it, they're just like, oh, my God, like you're describing, you know, my spouse exactly. And, you know, what, you know, what do we do? And I, of course, never give advice. I don't care. It's just a, and there's a lot of options to people. Um, sometimes staying with the person, people will do that. And there's there's ways to navigate that to a life that is well uh, for, for everyone. Um but uh, so, so a little bit on that is that 
as I have uh, treated people similar to the people that have been in your class, um, the they will upon starting to separate, even if it's just emotionally speaking, like they start to say, I'm going to start drawing boundaries here. I'm not going to listen to them lecture me for two hours. I'm not going to put myself in the back burner. I'm not going to let their tirades like rule my life. Um, if they want to react that way, then that's not their choice. And I'm going to say, well, you can react that way if you want to, but that's not my problem, you know. And uh, And as they do that, that self-esteem uh, starts to be challenged because they actually get some personal pleasure as to being that person that is helping that uh, that other person, and so they're taking away some of their own, um, you know, behaviors that that actually make themselves feel good. There's a certain ironic superiority in in that person's um, position. You know, they'll, they'll often feel like, um, yeah, certainly my spouse is very high on themselves and, you know, might be achieving a lot and very outward focused. And every, you know, a common scenario is, is everyone loves him, you know, everyone at work loves him. And if they only knew what he was really like when mm-hmm. he was at home and uh, they will kind of get a little bit of self-esteem from the fact that they know they're better than their spouse. You mm-hmm. know, they, they, ho- they tolerate emotions better. They're not as mean. And there's a dynamic there that uh, the person suffering from that relationship has to give up. And and without a way of getting that self-esteem in some other way, they might be compelled to go back to that person against against their will, so to speak. Um, do you ever find things like that? Well, it's a very complex dynamic. I think really what you're pointing out is how complex the dynamic is, that sometimes the what I'll call the relational person uh, – let me just define that when I say a relational person – I'm thinking of a person who enjoys relationship for the sake of relationship. Hmm. A transactional person, I think of as a person who enjoys relationship for the sake of the transaction, hmm. for the sake of what they get out of it. Um, in general, it'll the relational person is the person who finds themselves to be the target of the narcissi- of the person with narcissistic behaviors. And in general, the person with narcissistic behaviors is the transactional person. Hmm. So for instance, I've actually heard somebody say, I overheard someone once say, to someone else, we should be friends. It would be really useful. Mm. And to me, that was a shocking statement. But to that person, uh, she meant it in the most benign way. She meant, I think, she she simply meant that if we were friends, that we could get a lot out of each other. We could exploit each other's capabilities in a positive way. I mean, I don't think she meant anything like it, uh, particularly about it, except that it was a transactional mm. statement that I wouldn't have seen myself making. Um, so. So I think to some extent people who are, quote, relational might become involved with the more transactional or narcissistic person because they do enjoy having there's, – there's kind of a deferred sunshine that comes from it, you know, where you just by association you get to be uh, – you, you can attain a certain station. The problem is – and all of these things, it really just has to do with whether there's a problem in the relationship. If you find yourself – involved with somebody who's narcissistic and this person, you know, runs the show, but you're happy with how it works, then I don't know, is that it's not necessarily for us to call that a problem. It's really just when these things can, when people are suffering or where they're being abused on some level that I think it, it 
becomes problematic and then it becomes important to look at it. And if the person is trying to get out of that dynamic and finds him or herself constantly repeating it, almost like an obsessive re- repetition compulsion, then um, it's it can be important. It's up to them to decide, but if it's important to them to look at it, then it can be important to sort of affirm or bear witness to it. So you do classes on this uh, or consultations, is that right? I've got, I've given talks on it. It's really as a community service. Oh. Um, and if people wanted to sign up for, the, are you doing these in the future or will you be doing these in the future? Um, I might be doing some in the future. Okay. I, I don't have any scheduled right now. So if they went to your website, they might find mm-hmm. that. And your yeah. website is what again? Uh, com. Okay. So the thing that I find with people, uh, the relational people, that is a huge barrier to them because, um, you know, once they, you know, the, there's a certain group of clients that will come to me and be in that position and they'll be like um, over time, maybe a year or so, they'll, they'll, they'll decide for themselves that they don't want to be with this person anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've established boundaries. They've tried it out. Um, it's, it's sort of working, but, um, they've fallen out of love and, and, and they just, they, they want to try something else. And now begins what I find usually to be the case because of the traumas the relational person went through and made them attracted to these people to begin with is to develop a sense of self, mm-hmm. who, who they are, right. what, how do they feel? What are they, what are they going through? You know, how, that connection with, um, who they are, the, the, uh, the analogy or the metaphor that I will use uh, is that they feel as though they don't have emotions or they don't have needs or th- there's nothing there. But what I will say is, is like you're looking into your bedroom and the lights are off. There's furniture in there. There's mm. posters on the wall. Mm. There's oh, really there's little journal articles or journal entries in your in your drawer. But the lights are off. You can't see it. So therapy and, you know, a lot of exploration and just constantly asking yourself and trying to get in connection with your emotions and your needs and who you are as a person, eventually the dimmer switch starts to come on. Um, Because a lot of people will be like, I don't have a personality or I'm nobody. And it's just like, no, Mm. no, you're someone. (laughs) Uh, You just don't you just haven't been taught and given the space to develop that awareness of what's in that room. And so. Uh, that can be years, though. Yeah. You know. Meanwhile, they're still in that relationship, and maybe if they even do relieve, they're attracted to those kinds of people. And um, the language that I use in, in my psychodynamic uh, language is that um, – maybe it's not necessarily psychodynamic, but it's within the theory – is that they'll sniff out those people. Mm-hmm. You know, They will – and maybe you can talk to this in terms of what you've experienced with the people you've talked to – is that they will – uh, say, okay, no more narcissists. Uh, here are the signs. I'm going to avoid it. And I've learned my lesson and I know what's up. The next person they start to be attracted to, the next crush, the next person they let pass the third date threshold, uh, you know, it's a 50-50 chance. It's the same sort of person. And and one, they will sniff out that person because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of narcissistic people uh, comparatively, right? There's a there's a fair amount, but it's not like the majority of fish in the sea. And yet they seem to be able to find them and they seem to be attracted to them and they seem to ignore the signs because, because of the lack of ability to see into the room – 
that can be very distressing. And so you want something, you want a room to look into, I guess, just to, to extend the metaphor. And if someone else has a room with like 10,000 lights just shining into their room, you know, a transactional person, a narcissistic person, then it's just like, well, that's a shiny room and there's things in that room. How about I just do that? And mm-hmm. it, it's so it's such an easy groove to fall into for people. It feels right. It feels comfortable. It feels non-scary at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, you know, what I tell people that I'm treating, I'll say, you're at the very beginning of this. Take your time. We'll do everything we can to make it as fast as possible. But your life is probably going to be messy uh, as it has been for a while and and just kind of accept that. Um, there's there's no way around that um, other than being um, becoming a monk and avoiding relationships, which is an option, but not necessarily the best option. Um, do you find this to be true with the people you talk to? I'm trying to think. That's a lot that you just said. Um, I think what can happen is that people is that people who have grown up being relational and who are attracted to these behaviors, the narcissistic behaviors, are people who have, as we said, you know, spent a lot of time developing those skills. Their talents lie in being able to admire other people as well as to put their own needs aside. So when I was giving one talk once, I remember I said um, to people, you know, let's say you're on a date and the person says to you, um, what do you want to do? You know, let's, what would you like to do this evening? The tip, and I sort of just held my arms open for everyone else to answer. And the entire room said in unison, I don't know, what do you want to do? So it's, it's exactly what you're describing. It's not that I don't believe that they don't have something that they might like to do, but their strength is in sincerely putting the energy into the relationship, meaning you decide, I'll be happy to do it. Whatever you want to do, I'll be happy to do. So they've developed that. But the other side of what they've developed is to be, quote, non-judgmental. So whenever I've tried to, when we get to the part about how to repel a narcissist or how to know what you'd like to do, what you would like out of a relationship, the signs are always there that people are narcissists because the, it's, it's just always, we can only be who we can be. And so very early on, even the first encounter, the signs will be there. The red flags are there. The problem is that the relational person is so invested in finding whether we could have a relationship that they ignore the signs. So, and, and this happens even as the relationship continues. So if someone, um, let's say they go on an, out on a date and somebody just starts eating off of your plate, some people would say, hey, what are you doing? Don't eat off of my plate. A person who's who's primarily invested in a relationship might think, oh, isn't this sweet? He or she is so intimate. You know, we're sharing. Isn't that nice? And so the sign was there. Now, I'm not saying you have to throw the person away on a first date. You can say, okay, well, that was a first date. Maybe they were nervous. Maybe they, Maybe that's how they show affection, whatever. But when you begin to see this happening over and over again, where they usurp your power or you give away your power... Um, is it's, that a common sign, eating off someone else's plate, or is that just a random example? It thought? could be an example. I mean, or I mean, one example I, I'm aware of, let's say, is where someone said, uh, let's go to this restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant. And the person said, you know, I don't like that kind of food. And then the first person said, you'll see, you'll like it. Mm. And the other person said, okay, let's do it. Mm. So the dynamic that was just traded there is 
I know what I want. I, that's what I want us to do. The second person said, did, you know, exercise a boundary and said, I don't like that. The, going back to the first person, he or she said, I don't care. And then the other person said, neither do I. So that was the dynamic that was set on the first date. I think that that's fairly, that could be a movie. It could be a poetry reading. Right. It could be whatever you want. But and then you rinse and repeat that over five years mm-hmm. and you're in a very locked in dynamic between right. two people. Right. I mean, the real answer to the how to repel a narcissist question is it's very simple. It's really just be yourself. Mm. If a narcissist is looking to be admired, that's one of the characteristics is that they have a really rather insatiable need to be admired. All you have to do is, it's not that you have to not admire them. All you have to do is be yourself. If they're not getting the lion's share of admiration in the relationship, they will find you to be high maintenance or boring, or they'll say no chemistry. They'll just find some kind of way of distancing. And it, and, but the relational person will often find that heartbreaking because what they really want, they don't want to repel a narcissist. They want to tame a narcissist. They want to transform a narcissist into somebody who will love me as much as I love them. That's not likely to happen. Right. Which, uh, in the psychodynamic sense, is repetition compulsion of recreating their relationship with whomever groomed them, as you say, to uh, expect and be the opposite side of the coin to the narcissist, right? Right. They're trying to recreate the relationship they experienced growing up in an unconscious attempt to correct for it, but inadvertently recreating more trauma for themselves. Right. And, it's a, you, and it can't be corrected because the person you're choosing is actually somebody who might be reminiscent of your earlier dynamic with a parent or a grandparent or whatever. But you're choosing somebody who actually isn't capable of that transformation but in your own repetition compulsion, you keep trying to make it happen, yeah. and it'll never turn over. It's like a car that just doesn't turn over. Yeah. Um, beyond a certain threshold, uh, in my experience, for a narcissistic personality, I would say that's true. But before a certain threshold, I would say that there is pliability. Um, not that the narcissistic person is not, you know, say you have a 40% person on narcissistic personality spectrum, according to my arbitrary little percentage thing. Uh-huh. Um and they're capable of uh, developing a dynamic where they act like a 70%, but they're also capable of developing a dynamic where they're 10%, and uh, it depends on both people. So obviously, if the narcissistic person is aware of their narcissism, that will go a long way. Um, And because in my conceptualization, the narcissistic person wants a wants to be relational they 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 or at least they want the result of a relational uh attitude or personality which is closeness and real mutual love and so uh, and i've seen this play out in couples is that you'll have someone who's 40 percent and then you'll have the relational person who doesn't have a sense of self developed because of the traumas they went through and that those kinds of interactions happen where the narcissistic person says, what do you want to do for dinner? And the relational person says, um, I don't know. What do you want to do? And then the narcissistic person, you know, everyone, most people, again, if we're below a certain threshold of narcissist who actually does have the capacity to see other people and, and wants to know and wants to care, um, they want everyone to be happy, you know, uh, like for me, when I ask my wife, uh, by the way, you know, me being 5%, my wife is not on the scale. Um, that's why we fit well together. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I ask her, um, you know, uh, 
we're not that extreme, so she'll actually answer that question. But let's say she didn't. Let's say she was just like, um, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, to me, even though I would love to dictate because of my 5%, I would love to be like, well, let's do this. Let's do that. But but there's another part of me that's just like, but do you want to do that? Because um, I don't want to – I would love to do what I want to do, but I would – but I would also uh, not like doing what I want to do while you don't want to do it. <laughs> so there's, can, let's have a conversation. And in order to have that conversation, the relational person has to enter into that. They have to put effort sometimes of doing like, okay, mm-hmm. my impulse right now is to say, um, I don't know, what do you want to do? But um, a practice of saying, okay, let me slow down because my impulse is to say this. Okay, but – Okay, well, well, you have to check. It takes a little bit longer for me to check in with myself. What do I want to do? Um, well, how about this? Even though um, you're not quite sure and you're not not open to the other person, but you have to meet that person. You have to be assertive, and that takes some effort. And when you enter into the room, then the narcissistic person gets that contact, and you know, because they're not at a higher level, so they actually do have a capacity or you know, an easier capacity to have empathy and that mutual love. And so now you're entering into the equation, and they can calm down their narcissism a little bit because they're getting the contact, the, you know, the love, the connection, without having to mask it with their own personality. Is this making sense? Yeah, I just, you're saying that you're 5% and your wife is not on the scale. I would say 5% doesn't make you a narcissist. I would say that you're like healthy narcissist, you know, like I'm hoping. There's some cons to my narcissism. So I, 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 well, but you still have, you are still holding at the, you know, at the apex of your triangle or of your pyramid. But to extend it to a 40% person who. Well, I I don't, I don't know that the numbers are what, I mean, you know, just taking what's really important is whether the person can take the relationship into account. Who's in this relationship? If the other person is in this relationship in a significant way, then that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is someone who might have narcissistic characteristics features but mm. you know who's to say that i mean uh, who's to say that that can't that person can't have a meaningful relationship so the kinds of people you're concerned with is the people that are beyond whatever in my mind a threshold is that uh it they it's uh even if the relational person inserts themselves um it will not be appreciated and it, it will not Absolutely it will not. not be accepted right i mean it will not be appreciated they're not looking for this person to insert themselves they're looking for this person to insert themselves in such a way that shows admiration and that's it yeah. and and you know if if that person does say like for instance to involve the person in the relationship the narcissistic person might say something like um let me know if there's anything i can do for you if you if if you want if it's a personal thing if you want a certain gift, or if you want me to go with you to a professional dinner or a breakfast, or if I can meet your friends, whatever it is, just let me know. I really want it. You've done this for me. I want to do it for you. Great. So the relational person thinks, oh, wow, that's nice reciprocity. That's like how it should be. So then, um, you know, so then there is, there's this professional happy hour or something. And they say, okay, well, you said you'd come, you know, this is happening at six o'clock. Oh, no, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I'm going to be working. Okay. All right. Fine. I understand that because you're relational and you just, you don't want to make too much of it. So then there's a breakfast the next month and it's at 7 a.m. So he's not going to be working at 7 a.m. or she. So it's like, okay, so in a month I have this thing at 7. Oh, no, that's too early. I can't possibly do that. I have it. You know, I, that's just not going to work for me. Okay. Okay. So then, you know, they keep trying. The person makes a promise and they break the promise and the reciprocal person says, 
but you promised. And the other person says, yeah, well, but things change. I mean, I can't do everything I say I'm going to do. So you find that there's a pattern where the relational person never enters into the, it never seems to matter. And there's a huge imbalance and there's no way in. And if you do yeah. challenge it too much, then you get in, then you face the narcissistic rage, which there's nothing quite like that. Right. Because you're criticizing the narcissistic person who needs to uphold that veil to survive and to puncture holes in that is to cause a, you know, the deep abyss that they feel. And then they, they want to protect that. And so they, they yell at you to get you to shut up and stop that. Okay. So you say that they have that veil to survive. And maybe the people you've worked with do. I'm talking about a person who, and this is part of the sort of, you know, diagnostic piece of it. I'm talking about a person who knows absolutely how to function at work, how to function in a church, synagogue, Muslim, mosque, you know, whatever, knows how to function with other people. It's really very specific toward this relate this one relationship where their rage or their inequities show up. Mm-hmm. And so I would I would submit that they do know how to behave that way. I mean, appropriately. It's actually it's actually contained quite effectively and and but used for a power play in order to get the relationship they want, usually in their most intimate relationships. This doesn't usually, I mean, it might come out in a more public way, but mm-hmm. some of these things are really particularly nefarious because they're so specific. Right. And and in my language system, and it's, and I'm guessing there are other people in mine, but I've experienced people in your language system, there's overlap between ours. Mm-hmm. But if I met someone in the way you're describing them, I would at least incorporate psychopathy and, and antisocial mm-hmm. into that in that they um, – and I actually conceive of those people. It's hard to know and there's data that refutes this or doesn't support it. But that early in life, they were socialized given their environment to uh, exert power and really totally turn off their empathy in order to cope with – their environment, mm-hmm. um, either modeling, they found that they were overpowered and, and or they saw people overpowering other people to get their needs met. Um, but whatever reason, it's a part of their personality that um, everyone is a instrument to them getting their needs met, which which you're describing. And it certainly is a part of narcissism is certainly a part of psychopathy um, and antisocial. Um, and so there's there's a Venn diagram with that, too. Yeah. Um, but so I, I guess the label and the way you conceive of that label and your application of that label is, um, you know, just, uh, over here and mine's over here. (laughs) There's overlap. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, I think is actually a rather sympathetic exhibition of narcissism. It's really rather sympathetic. I mean, the examples that you're giving are people who still are involved, who want a relationship. They mm-hmm. don't just want to be loved in a kind of one-sided admiration um, I mean, they do they, want, but deep down, they have a deeper want, I guess. If they mm-hmm. could really experience uh, and, and accept over a long period of time uncomplicated love that doesn't involve admiration, then 
they would relax. Um, and, and those are the people that I've treated over time. It takes a long time. I mean, we're talking like five years of treatment. Right. But see, by definition, you're talking about people who have sought out treatment and who have been willing to stay. Um, them, which obviously they're not high on the, on the spectrum. And, but I've also treated um, uh, couples where the, you know, the spouse, the narcissistic spouse was dragged in totally against their will mm-hmm. and have uh, convinced the narcissistic person that there's a path to getting them that what they want that won't feel natural to them. But, and it takes a long time and, you know, they'll blow me off and say that I'm stupid and all this kind of stuff. But over time, like they eventually get there and they have all those kinds of qualities where um, they can't admit that they did anything wrong. And, you know, they, they have a pretty full blossomed version of, of the disorder, maybe not, you know, uh, at, the, at the higher end. But uh, but yeah, I mean, and people I've talked about narcissism on the podcast before and I on the Internet, I get a lot of people saying, um, you know, I think you're discounting the the terribleness that these narcissistic people are capable of. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I don't want to do that. <laughs> I am aware of it. I've experienced it personally in my mm-hmm. life. You know, I've experienced the 80 percent narcissistic person in my personal life, mm-hmm. people close to me, people in control of my life. It has been abusive it's horrible i i get sweaty palms just bringing those people to mind i'm not even talking about them you know it's traumatic these people are are horrible i mean no better way to put it it's just like they can be really really terrible you know and scary you know right and 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 i'm not going to discount that but i i uh having been in contact with these people and having i think the privilege of being able to treat them i've I've figured out, you know, for at least the people I've treated, you know, a path, although a long one, to actually getting their needs met in a functional way and getting them to reduce their reactivity that ends up harming other people significantly. That's fantastic. That's really great. I'm so glad to know that you that you're doing that. Yeah. Because a lot of people either won't work with people like that or people like that don't feel the connection i guess somehow you've you've let them know that you have enough empathy but with good boundaries to um help that come out i mean it's similar with all personality disorders really it's uh or many of them anyway uh they tend to provoke a fair amount of countertransference in us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh if not properly conceptualized um we will be like uh no not this person i don't right. this person's a lost cause or right. whatever so but one of the interesting things is so you're dealing with it from a psychological and psychodynamic point of view which is wonderful from another point of view from a societal point of view what can end up happening is that people um let's say they need mediation it comes up a lot a lot in family law situations which is to say divorce situations where people have managed to kind of work out their relationships up to a certain point and then they get into a divorce situation and then things go wild. You know, like the person who was who was kind of um, controlling the relationship in some way going 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 forward now becomes all all bets are off. They want to get what they want to get. You know, that happens and I understand that. What what becomes particularly difficult is that sometimes they end up in mediation situations where attorneys or mediators think that they they think that they have a real beat on this. They think that they really understand that they can tell when somebody has these characteristics. And what they don't understand is that the dynamic can be such that one person can just look at the other one a certain way and communicate that they'd better do X, Y, Z. They better shut up. They better, you know, yeah. do what I say. They better let this alone. They better not bring this up. 
And you end up in a situation where you can't possibly come up with a fair result. Mm. Um, and so I really think this is important for people pretty much in, I want to say in all walks of life, that might be an exaggeration, but certainly, you know, there, there are a lot more ways that people need to be educated on this dynamic than we realize. Including attorneys and judges yeah, and sure. those people, as they're watching that play out, they might have to, you know, narcissistically informed legal practices would mean like just because they're saying all the words of negotiation right. and, 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 uh, and accommodation and, and meeting right. the middle, the relational person might still be getting the, the shaft. Yeah. And what's really horrifying is that the relational person, you know, the relational person has been going through a lot of this being on the, the receiving end of this stuff. So what can end up happening, quite frankly, is that the relational person can actually seem paranoid, highly neurotic, um, obstreperous, you know, like they just complain about everything. They can seem um, as if they're, they're creating um, obstacles to everything. They won't agree to anything because they're saying, you don't understand, that's what this really means. And they actually might be right, but from everybody else's point of view, they just seem to be impossible. And so those, the, the, the quote, relational person, the person who's been targeted with the, by these behaviors, um, might not be very likable. And the courts or the lawyers or the therapists, they all might think, you know, you're really a pain in the neck. And Except the narcissistic person is very lovely. adept they at so lovely. impression management. And, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that becomes really complex. Huh. And then if you get to a situation where the children don't want to be with one or the other parent, and then it looks like they're, then the, one of the parents might be accused of uh, alienation and it gets very, very complex, and all I can think of is that people need to at least become more educated about what these dynamics are like. Yeah, absolutely. And the kids might be terrified of the consequences mm -hmm. because they've seen it at home because, as I said earlier, there is some, there's a profile of a narcissistic person who will uh, never let out their ugly side in public never and let it out in full glory at home mm -hmm. and the kids having witnessed that in court might you know say uh, yeah we want to go with dad even though dad's the one who mm -hmm. you know and i want to be clear there's plenty of i've treated plenty of female narcissistic people it tends on prevalence wise um, according to stats and according to my anecdote is it's more of a male thing because yeah, um, they're, the they're, they're socialized that way yeah. um, as the counterpoint or the the, the sister uh, diagnosis is borderline that's more prevalent for women because the idea is, is that men are socialized to be independent and to not care. And, and so when they're faced with the traumas of growing up, they'll, there's a more likelihood of them edging towards superiority as a coping style as opposed to uh, the preoccupied attachment style of, of people with borderline. Um, I, I just want to make one comment about what you said, where court, where children would go to courts and say, I want to go with one parent or the other. Courts usually won't, they don't want the, ch the child's input because they don't want to put the child in the, in the middle. So I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, well, that's good. I didn't know that. Because you hear that. You hear like uh, um, stories of um, kids being put on the stand and saying, you know, which parent do you want to be? I mean, did they used to do that in the past? I don't know. I can't say. But I, I'm, I've read things and also... Um, it's I, I know from various cases that in general, the court does not look kindly upon that. Even sometimes the kids want to say something, but um, 
it's not necessarily going to work for you. They don't want to put the kids in yeah. that in that position. Mm-hmm. It might look make you look bad because exactly it's like oh how did that kid get to that point? Are they saying that because they think they should, or were they coached to say yeah, that? Yeah, it could backfire. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, interesting. Well, uh, what else have we not got to on this topic? Well, so one of the questions I think is always interesting is how when you do have a dynamic of between a for lack of better words, relational and transactional person, is how how does that happen? You know, like how how does the transactional person walk into a room, scan it, and go, you, I think you'll be a good target. And, um, you know, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting quandary. Like on the one hand, I think, um, I think it's really just kind of they do it to everybody. So if they're looking for someone to admire, I mean to admire them, they might just cast a wide net and see what happens. But um, but as I started to study this, I was at a party once, and I was sitting with these um, three other women, which happened happened to be a perfect example. You know, they were sort of the, the perfect um, example of three different ways of looking at something. And one woman was was basically saying that she wanted to go away on a trip, and she to another country and. She loves to travel and she's just going to go alone and she doesn't want to be part of a group. She's just going to go alone and work out her own thing. And then another woman said, oh, wow, I could never do that. I mean, I, I've i been widowed now for 10 years and I live in this big house and I'd be happy to take somebody with me, but I could never go alone and I, I could never plan that out myself. And then the third person said, well, um, I could see myself going on a trip, but um, I'd want to go with a group and I'd want to have somebody who would plan it all out and I'd be around other people. Mm-hmm. So if I, I was, as I was studying this, I was thinking, wow, this is actually pretty interesting because if I were somebody who was looking to take advantage of someone, I'd go with number two. I'd go with the woman who's been all alone for 10 years. She doesn't seem to have anybody looking out for her. She lives in a big house. She's probably got money. She's offering to take somebody else, so she's at least got enough money to, to burn in that way. I'd like to explore that possibility if I were that person. And um, so it's actually not that difficult because people who are vulnerable, they wear it on their sleeves. You know, mm-hmm. they'll, they're very quick to say that they're lonely or that they, you know, there are ways to find out. You ask what their relationships are with their family. If they don't have anybody, they're not close to anybody or they don't have a lot of friends or they, they sit at home a lot on their own. They don't know how to manage their time. Uh, these are all people who... They maintain good eye contact. They're good listeners. They never change the subject. You know, the the narcissist can just keep talking ad ad nauseum about him or herself, and they don't, these other people don't change the subject. They don't roll their eyes. They don't. You know, they 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 continue to admire them. It's really pretty straightforward. And then and then what you do, what the narcissist or if the person has even more nefarious ideas, then what they do is they sort of test you. Like they'll say something small that. That isn't really small, but something, and they see how the person reacts. So let's say they say, well, that was stupid. Why would you say that? Now, a relational person won't make too much of that. The relational person will think, well, maybe it was stupid. I mean, I'm not the most brilliant person in the world. So they just kind of let it go. But that's actually not a nice thing to say to somebody. Well, that was stupid, really? And so so they, they'll just put out these little bombs, you know, and see how the person reacts. And right. then, if Or a more react, subtle thing would be like, well, you know, I don't think you understand the full situation, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Yep, yep, yep. Perfect example. I mean, it's subtle enough, but it communicates it communicates disdain 
and then and superiority and superiority so then what happens is if the person puts up with it if the person doesn't say you know what that was really rude i'm out right just like that the the narcissistic person or the predator or however you want to call it in this case that person first of all sees you as a fool and secondly believes that now you deserve to be treated this way mm. so it justifies their contempt and then it sort of builds from there. Right. And but then what happens is is that the relational person becomes so invested that um, they're not likely to leave. And at that point, it's when the 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 transactional person understands that that person is invested that then they can kind of go to town because right. you know that's where the rage might come out because they know that they're not going to leave. So it's a combination of confirmatory bias plus intermittent, um, you know, intermittent behaviors and then investment. So the confirmatory bias, if you're nice to start with, it'll become very difficult for the person to take in any information that contradicts their Im initial impression, the initial positive impression. Right. The intermittent reinforcement then comes where you sort of test and you, you say something nasty or something dismissive, and then, but then you say something nice so that the person never quite knows where they stand. And then once the person has invested themselves, they're very unlike they they value something more highly because they've invested their time and energy, and they're less and less likely to leave. Right, and they've been beaten down emotionally to the point where they start to believe mm -hmm. that they are stupid and they are um, irrelevant or they are um, lesser. They do need their uh, narcissistic partner to survive mm -hmm. or their opinions don't make any sense. You know, people use the, f the phrase gaslighting, I think a little bit too liberally these days, but, but that absolutely can happen too, uh, inadvertently even or advertently, um, where mm -hmm. the person ends up uh, not really trusting their own perceptions of, of the situation. It's just like, well, I, I have notions that I feel like my spouse is being abusive to me, but... My spouse has effectively convinced me that I deserve it, or that it's normal, mm -hmm. or that I um, I'm I, I don't see things correctly because they always manage to convince me otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I am uh, wrong about this, and and it just you know can, continues to compound in that yeah. way. I mean, I think it could be argued that if you have, let's say, a line, a continuum, and in the middle is zero and to the right is positive numbers, and to the left are negative numbers. If you go from zero to 10, let's say, of po on the positive side of a person having narcissistic characteristics, then the person, the relational person will tolerate it to the extent that they match that person in the negative. So if a person is a 10 on a narcissism scale, let's say, the person who's only a minus five on the relational scale won't put up with the 10, that person who's number who's at minus five, they'll be like, I am out here. This is ridiculous. Mm. But if that person is also a 10, meaning hyper-relational to, to match the, the opposite narcissism, they'll stay um, until they'll stay until the narcissist discards them, mm. basically. Yeah. Or forever. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I've treated couples like, I mean, I don't know about forever, but definitely years and years and years. Well, know? if the narcissist doesn't discard them, they, you know, I mean, oh, I sometimes it, what happens is that the person loses their value. So one of the characteristics of narcissism can be that they are very invested in idealized love. Hmm. And what that means, the way that translates out is that you really can never maintain that idealized position. 
I mean, the, the relational person can never quite be so idealized because that's the kind of I love being in love thing. Mm. So the minute, the minute you've got a baby with a dirty diaper and, the, and one person says, oh, could you please bring me a new diaper? That's, you're no longer idealized, right? So that's where the, I mean, one example of how it can start to go downhill. Right. But if the person is invested in idealized anything, you're going to fall from that position because, because, no, because the relational person is looking for an actual relationship, not for only being idealized. Right. Somewhere in there, they want to have a relationship. So they'll fall from that grace, and that's when the narcissistic type person will begin to look elsewhere. Right, have affairs is a common. Yeah, it's just so. a matter of time. Right, it's, it's a, like it's time stamped. Yeah. Like the relationship has time stamp on it. Right, because as they, in my conceptualization, as they bump up against the uh, frustration uh, for both people that they're not getting their needs met, um, even though. They are trying in dysfunctional ways, the narcissistic person. Uh, they have in, your, in their mind this idea that they're entitled to this idealized mm-hmm. love that's often punted into our heads from propaganda. I think we all have this false notion of, of what love is supposed to look like, you know, from rom-coms and stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, and songs. I mean, you know, that's another thing. I mean, that's a whole other topic. But I, I really think that songs are almost a form of hypnotism. Mm. Where you grow up listening to certain songs and you, um, you're you hypnotized. I mean, you sing them and mm-hmm. you begin to believe them. So, so the narcissistic person who enjoys his or her version of songs will have these songs about, oh, she's the most wonderful person, he's the most wonderful person, this is what I love. The relational person will be listening to songs that are basically saying... Uh, I don't like you, but I love you. Seems that I'm always thinking of you. You've really got a hold on me. You know, mm. the, I, like these are songs where you're actually love has no pride. Bonnie mm. Raitt had a song, Love Has No Pride. You're actually taught, and you, you know, you reinforce it yourself that if I expect to always feel good about it, that's not love. Mm-hmm. Lo- and I, I'm the first to say, you know, loving relationships can be complicated. But if you find yourself on the on the receiving end of what really might be abusive behaviors. I would have to question that, but but we are, t- and then and then there's the other thing is the perversion of fairy tales, you know that we listen like um, a lot of women will say how you have to kiss a thousand. The fairy tale is that you have to kiss a hundred frogs before you find your prince, but what people will tr- turn that into is you have to kiss a frog a hundred times before he turns into a prince, mm. right? So you you get this perverted sense of that you can make somebody change even if they have zero desire to change. Even the story of Beauty and the Beast, you know, there's the story of how this bestial, this man who, this person, man, who looks like a beast actually has a heart of gold inside. It can be very loving. But but somehow the message is is that the beauty can turn the beast into a good person Mm -hmm. because she kissed him in the myth. But, But the whole idea is that it's unusual. It's not the norm for a beast to be a good person. The norm is if you see a beast, you should run. And still, that you can't make somebody change. It's got to be inside him or her inherently. Yeah, so much socialization to little boys and girls. Yeah. That as boys, the the ideal is to be the beast, but to have a soft side, you know. But you Mm got to be the Mm -hmm. beast. Mm -hmm. You got to be assertive and masculine and sure of yourself and dangerous at times. And to be feared, your, your wife should kind of be afraid of you and your mm. your big chest you know and and, and never cry and never cry right. and you know always jump in the battle and you know always know the thing and never cry and 
And uh, the woman, uh, the Marge Simpson, needs to figure out how to uh, wrangle the the masculinity of the husband. You know, mm-hmm. oh, he'll be stupid and he'll drink too much and he'll be ir- he won't care about you know he'll quote unquote help with the parenting. But you know, you gotta you gotta mold your husband. You know, mm-hmm. into some, instead of just like expecting another human being to be a fucking human being. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just grow the fuck up, uh, mm-hmm. Homer. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you're not helping with parenting. Just be a parent. You're not a child anymore, you know? Like, wake up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we have a long way to go. And, you know, we're starting. The Some of the Disney cartoons are trying. They still have problems in it. But, um, I mean, it's not Disney, but, you know, Shrek, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the the princess didn't turn him into a prince, uh, except they did in, I think, three and they went back. But anyway, not to spoil it, but they changed uh, – isn't that right? Didn't they change the the woman – the princess had a spell on her where at nighttime or at some point she would turn into a, tr- a troll or a, whatever they mm. whatever they call those – Shrek is. Isn't he a troll? Anyway – and then she chose to be a troll permanently, and so they mm. could be together. And so it was a mm. different. Anyway, there, there's 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 Disney shows are trying to subvert that because uh, they're they're starting to be aware. Again, they still have problems, but um, maybe in a hundred years, our you know that generation will not be as um, deluded about gender and or rigid about gender and mm-hmm. about what romance is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, that's that's my hope anyway. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, to extend that to narcissism, though all those shows are essentially saying men are supposed to be narcissistic and transactional, mm-hmm. and women are supposed to be self-sacrificing and relational, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, going back to Fred Flintstone and um, uh, Wilma, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> uh, same dynamic, you know, it's just been through through the ages, the honeymooners, you know, with mm-hmm. Jackie Gleason and his wife, you know, it was always that way. It's just, uh, it's just, um, awful that we do this to our kids, you know, that we teach them that and then, um, subtly tell them that they're not supposed to be that way when we've absolutely been pumping that into their heads the whole time. Anyway, um, what else haven't we gotten to? We've got to everything that you wanted to talk about in terms of narcissism. I am trying to think, um, it's been a great conversation. Well, Fran, it's been a fascinating conversation. I always love talking about personality disorders with people. And, and, I, and I've learned a little bit. I've learned a little bit about – because people email me, I think, from uh, your camp of the conceptualization of narcissism, um, that uh, I need to be aware that there's uh, there's different spheres of defining. You know, like I'm guessing if you and I ran across a case – uh, many cases we would agree, okay, that person has a narcissistic personality, that person has psychopathy, but there would be some people that I would probably characterize as psychopathic and you would act, you would characterize them as narcissistic. They'd sort of be in the middle there somewhere. Well, I, okay, so that's actually another area that I think can be discussed. I don't know if we want to do it now or at another time, but um, there is this, there can be this heavy overlay between narcissism and psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And um, or antisocial, sociopath, psychopath. Those are the for the for the listeners um, that can be encompassed in those. So so there can be a really heavy overlay. And I think when when we get to looking at people in the court system or when people are getting divorces and when you talk about high conflict behaviors, there I think there really can be a heavy overlay w- with the psychopathy. And even when people, I think in general, when um, people talk about these 
really difficult, horrible relationships where they're suffering, whether they know it or not, I actually think that there probably is a high overlay of of antisocial behaviors. It may not be someone who fulfills full criteria for antisocial um, personality disorder, but the behaviors can be quite cruel. And again, the relational person can be misunderstanding the signs. You know, they I've heard so many people talk about, well, at least he's honest, when in fact it's cruelty, he or she. So I think that that is really, really important to pay attention to because I think a lot of people are suffering in these relationships when they don't quite realize how how terrible it is. I feel I'm glad that a lot of, particularly women, will kind of awaken to what's going on when they see their children suffering. I'm glad that they do that. But however, I really feel like I wish that women would and men would become aware of it simply because it's damaging to oneself. Right. But again, you have to have that sense of self to even be yeah. alerted to the fact that you matter, yes. you know, um, for sure. Um, one last example, then we'll adjourn, is uh, I have the pleasure of a colleague of mine, Dr. James Manley, who was actually the psychologist who was evalu- who was providing the parenting evaluation for uh, Josh Powell. Josh Powell. Oh, wow. You, you, you might remember him. Oh, my gosh. For the listeners, he was the person who was highly suspected of killing his wife in Utah, and but was never uh, convicted or charged anyway. He came with his two boys to uh, Washington State near Seattle, and um, uh, long story short, the state decided to investigate Josh Powell and his parenting of his kids and his kids were actually taken away and then were started to give give him back with supervised visits by a social worker. Mean, meanwhile, my friend and colleague, Dr. James Manley, was ev- evaluating for a future court date uh, Josh Powell's ability to parent. He would do these observations and, and um, he was starting to write that report. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, because he was pushed into a corner around his potential sexual uh, crimes, Josh Powell uh, killed his two boys and killed himself um, in a very dramatic fashion. The social worker was bringing the kids to the house and uh, Josh Powell grabbed his two sons, pushed the social worker out of the house, slammed the door, locked it proceeded to uh, murder his two kids and then lit the entire house on fire and, and, and burned the, you know, to the ground. It's a very tragic, horrific uh, example and um, traumatic for that social worker, particularly. Um, and Manley, Dr. James Manley came on my podcast and uh, recounted the entire event from beginning to end. And, and his conclusion was that Josh Powell had narcissistic personality disorder and um, at the time, I didn't have the same conceptualization as I do now, but with my current conceptualization, I would look at that and say like, oh, that's one of those examples where I would call that psychopathy with narcissism. He's calling it narcissism with psychopathy. And I think that's part of that just decision that all of us have to make in terms of like where we uh, draw the line. Is it bluish green or is it greenish blue? Right. And that's why I think it's so important to be grounded in the behaviors, mm. because if you get too caught up, I mean, I think. I th- believe me, I think um, diagnosis is an important tool, and I think it's important that it be done well. I think it's important that a differential diagnosis be done thoroughly, so that it's not just what does fulfill the criteria, but what what might better fulfill the criteria. 
Um, so I, I'm, I really think that that's important. But but there are also times when whether it's narcissism with with a smattering of this of the antisocial or whether it's essentially antisocial with certain narcissistic behaviors. The really important thing is to look at the behaviors and to see what the effects are and where to go with that. Right. So. Yeah. And when we as clinicians are treating and conferring, we don't just say, oh, they're narcissistic and know exactly what we're talking about. We're like, okay, let's talk about it. What do you see? Why do you apply that label? And then if another clinician is like, huh, well, that kind of sounds more like psychopathy with narcissism to me, but who who cares? We're, we're describing the individual and, and let's, let's just work on that description. Right. I mean, one of the frustrations is that this is probably as, as much an art as it is a science and that, um, you know, maybe at some future time we're going to have various names for things that we now hold under one rubric. Right. Um, and that's why it, I, I really think it's so important for people to do this responsibly. But, uh, but part of the responsibility is also to be willing to look at the behaviors and to acknowledge what's going on and the dangers that can occur yeah. within them. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Fran. Thank you for defi- having me. Definitely in my zone here, as the podcast <laughs> listeners will know. I love talking about this sort of thing. And, I, and I, like I said, I've learned a little bit, which is which is great. Um, and I know the listeners have as well. Oh, so um, have I. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, please take care of yourself out there. And Fran, I'm going to ask you, yes. why do you think the listeners out there should keep care of themselves and and keep care of other people? Why should they keep care of themselves and keep care of other people? Because that's what it's all about. I, I, relationship is, is so important. And part of relationship is taking care of yourself so that you can be present and you can be active and have, um, have positive relationships with the peop- all the people you know. Yeah. Beautifully said. Thanks, Fran. Thank you.